Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are. We're back. Part two. Right. Of our examination, exegesis, exploration of the nature of walking, not only in its manifestation in our in our lives as going back to um, the start of things, but also in the work of Henry David Thoreau and uh, and walking the wild. And so, there's one thing I wanted to just say is um, it seems to me that. This nature of the part two is kind of uh, woven into that idea that Thoreau had of the loop, the nature of walks as being a loop, of being a coming from starting in a place and going forth and then returning to that same place. To the origin. Yeah. yeah. And th- so, you know, like we've come to this. Also, I was thinking, yeah, like, you know, <laughs> the, the idea of the monomyth, you know. It's a word that was picked up um, from James Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake and in monomyth that was picked up it's by one myth. Campbell <laughs> and made a big thing of. It's the idea that's um, incorporated into The Hobbit, the idea of um, there and back again. Oh, the, the something epic. happens that causes you to set forth and then you get to a point and resolve that. Hmm instigation and then return to where you came from to tell of it yeah. it's, it's the, the um yeah. the, hero- the heroic the heroic journey that's okay. right i believe that's another yeah that's a coin like in uh, odysseus odysseus right goes forth to the trojan war then he returns right, right. it's always starts in the middle of things and there's some sort of um provocation and a descent into um a subterranean world descent into the underworld Hmm. Usually a cluster of tasks to accomplish hmm. that have a preternatural quality to them. And then the nostos, the return to where one began with this um, new uh, knowledge of the world. Right. And Which is sometimes based based on folklore, folkloric stories, Vladimir Prop, objective structuralism. Those they're archetypes of the story that we've been telling um, for a long time. Yeah. And sometimes a kind of tragic return, yes. like uh, Odysseus has a kind of triumphant return. But I'm um, thinking of Gilgamesh, who goes forth to try to find the secret of eternal life, fails, comes home and dies. Anyway, that's my memory of the story, which yeah, is like the first book, first book ever written, has a kind of tragic uh, finale. And yeah. According to um, Tennyson, Tennyson's are... Ulysses, um, Odysseus becomes bored and, is huh. like, and then sets off for this uh, final journey. And I think Dante writes about it as well. This final Kazantzakis, uh, Kazantzakis, uh, you know, the Odyssey, a modern sequel. Um, that's his, um, his thing. His thing. Yeah, totally. Goes to Antarctica. But the um, thing is, where have we gone? <laughs> you know, between having set forth and then we had a week interval, I was just wondering about the rhythm of walking and how it's woven into your lives over this past week. 
and if in fact our going forth had had any impact i do find myself thinking constantly about walking and i do you know a small amount of walking i was thinking today i i guess i'm i'm a very literal person and i was just i just keep coming back to the idea that thoreau walked as i said last time four hours a day or more and i was thinking like what is the proportion with me you know maybe one percent of my life i'm outdoors maybe 10 percent at the most uh-huh. but still you know like today i was walking to the bus back from the bus i walked a little tiny bit in kingston through the rain but was most sort of conscious when i was like in the woods in this road that goes through the woods from my house to the bus thinking it's not much part of my life it's not a big part of my life but it is something a little bump in consciousness just being a little bit near some uh fragmentary piece of of the forest yeah (laughs) forest being between the and where i walk is between the asopus creek yeah and the mountain that's Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's I, the place that I walk mostly. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Andrew? Well, I love walking. Um, I try to walk most places. Hmm. If, if I can pull it off, um, I will not take the subway or a cab. Or I walk a lot. Uh, you walk to work? I walk to work. I walk back to work. Uh, a few years ago, on a regular basis, I was um, circumambulating Manhattan. Wow. About once every two weeks. You mean walk in the entire yes. uh, outline of Manhattan? Yeah, yeah. I would start maybe um, where I live on the Upper West Side, go to the East Side, around the Battery, and up the West Side. Oh, so you wouldn't go around the entire island? No, I wouldn't go to um, where you were raised in Inwood. It was too far north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, That's like uh, where I grew one up. One thing I would posit is uh, Alfred Kazin's uh, book, A Walker in the City. And how New York is such a great city for long walks, but they're principally kind of inner events. Hmm. You know, there's, a, you know, they're kind of inner events. For me, mostly in the city, I feel very um, in myself. Sure. Hmm. In nature. Yeah. In, in do you, forest, do you walk daily? Yeah, I, I walk a lot because I have, a, you know, we have a lot of dogs. But, uh, yeah, I took a great walk with... Um, with Virgil the other day, um, <laughs> we did a loop actually because I was thinking about I was thinking about Thoreau, and so I did a kind of I, I tried to make a um, more like an ellipsis, um, and went up to the lake that I live up on, Odensasi, Odensasi Lake, and then you know cut across some neighbor's land and went across a swampy area. Oh. Thought of Thoreau actually, yeah. There was a there's a real um, ecology, a, a swamp, a bog, you know, with the beavers and stuff like that, uh-huh. where I am. And so you know, connected up close to that, and uh, and then came back home, you know, saw through the trees my house, you know, a bit of bushwhacking, and it was oh. a good hike. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that word bushwhacking which is not the word that Thoreau uses. Thoreau says walking. But when I was a young hiker, my friends and I that I hiked with, we would use that term bushwhacking, meaning walking without a trail, which was considered kind of like a higher level of 
I think we sort of secretly thought this is like the greatest hiking is without a trail. Yeah. You know, there's something a little like weak. Bushwhacking, uh, it reminds me of the uh, the words of Woody Guthrie. You know, huh. there, there, these words I heard in in the bur- in my burning bush. <laughs> so uh, to get reoriented, where were we? And let's keep let's press on, you guys. I mean, there was one thing that I was going to say as a sort of introduction, which is uh, Andrew was quoting the Thoreau's statement about the walking essay, where he says. I regard this as a sort of introduction to all that I may write hereafter. Yes. And then I found myself like obsessively wondering, well, what did he write hereafter? So the problem is that um, walking is, it's composed, it's first delivered as a lecture, as we said last time in 1951. It's, you know, published in, I mean, in 1851. And then it's published in 1862 after Thoreau is dead. So let's say 1851 is the composition date of it. So here's the works that were written after that. An Excursion to Canada, Slavery in Massachusetts, Walden, which is 1854. And then there's three uh, essays about John Brown. A plea for Captain John Brown, remarks after the hanging of John Brown, the last days of John Brown. And then autumnal tints, wild apples, colon, the history of the apple tree. Now now we're already up to posthumous works. The Fall of the Leaf, 1863, Excursions, 1863, Life Without Principle, 1863, Night and Moonlight, the Highland Light, and the Maine Woods. Maine Woods, I think, is a fairly, what's the word, canonical work of Thoreau's 1864. Oh, and then Cape Cod, which I read, uh, is uh, 1865. What's so, intense anyway. is the, uh, you know, within the body of his work, that um, he was very politically active, you know, which one doesn't get a jag of in this essay, Walking. But also that, you know, like walking, he also wrote one of the most famous essays of the um, 19th century, which was, of course, civil disobedience. Right. Don't you think there's a political dimension to the um, essay walking? Oh, definitely. No doubt. Like a very core fundamental. And also to keep in mind, his residence in Walden had already gone down. Right. He, you know, walking is something that came out of Walden. You know, Walden is actually his crucible, you know, in many ways. But walking is nevertheless a direct articulation of the foundational structure of what he learned collaborating at Walden Pond. Right. But I think it'd be interesting to do civil disobedience in conjunction with walking, like to take those two essays and see what they have to say to each other and the kind of Vim diagram between them, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, walking is about being outside of society. You're not even on the roads. You're not in the towns. You're kind of refusing to obey the laws that are set down by the traditions of travel you're walking off the beaten path like civil disobedience is walking politically off the beaten path. 
if that is not too labored a metaphor. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I know. I felt that that was one thing that I, I think was maybe a problem with what we were talking about last time as we were tending towards thinking of Thoreau as this kind of hermit mystic who's in this ecstatic relationship to nature, which apparently he was. But then he's also this highly engaged political figure because the civil disobedience essay, of course, but we have to say this because some people listening yeah. to this are possibly 14 years old. That essay inspires uh, Mahatma Gandhi, which in turn inspires Martin Luther King. So it's one of the most important political essays ever written, as you were saying. And at the same time, a very anarchic um, essay, because it questions the very validity of the state itself. Mm. Yeah, I don't remember it well. But no, it but was low lives on. That's, you know, culture is the sum of everything learned forgotten. <laughs> That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes said. Really? Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I, I learned is that the uh, the scholar appreciates his his or her uh, ability to forget. Huh. You know, you forget the dross. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. So, I used to have uh, this theory. I had a theory about <laughs> every so often I would lose my journal with all my poems in it. And it would really devastate me, you know, when I was 26 years old. And then I gradually decided that all the good poems you'll remember, you know, the ones that are worth remembering, they'll stay. Yeah. Henry Miller said something similar. <laughs> um, yeah, he said you can never lose, you never lose an idea. Huh. huh. Yeah. So the uh, the thing is, I, I just, uh, shouldn't we drill back in? I mean, where I left off was at a very interesting point. And I think uh -huh. this may relate to Henry Miller in that um, Thoreau states in the essay, and this is a very provocative statement that I want you guys to connect with. In literature, it is only the wild that attracts us. Mm. Dullness is but another name for tameness. So yeah, I just read that. Literature has is capitalized mm. in literature, comma. It is only the wild that attract us, attracts us. Dullness is but another name for tameness. And just you know, what do you does that ricochet around for you? It's a radical statement. I mean, it does make me think, well, there is sort of politics kind of hidden, embedded, you might say, in walking. At least in this case, a kind of literary politics, you know, saying in a way the more crazier writers are the best writers. He mentions Hamlet at one point, I think right around there. Uh, Hamlet, I think, and the Iliad as examples of, you know, wild and crazy literature that that has a power to startle you yeah he doesn't use um crazy but he you know the next yeah. line is it is the uncivilized free and wild thinking in hamlet and the iliad in all the scriptures and mythologies hmm. not learned in the schools that delights us yeah I, and we could go on you know this is a this is a um fundamentally terrific, lots of good sentences. 
Uh, then he goes on, a truly good book is something as natural and as unexpectedly and unaccountably fair and perfect as a wild flower. Yeah, uh, isn't that <laughs> discovered, great? Yeah. And then he goes on, discovered on the prairies of the West or in the jungles of the East. So again, there is a political and kind of that Spenglerian shadow, you know, which he anticipated, perhaps. <laughs> and then he writes, genius is a light which makes the darkness visible like a lightning flash. Now, that's an Adorno. You can cite Adorno. Adorno cites that. Which huh. chance shatters the temple of knowledge itself and yeah. not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race which pales before the light of common day. The hearthstone of the race. Yeah, I noticed that phrase. Hearthstone. What is a hearthstone? It's the stone that's in the hearth? It's a stone on top of the hearth that um, heats up. Oh, and, and you we, use it for cooking? You can um, boil water on it. You can put um, sodden, frozen clothing on it. You can huh. warm hands over it. It's related to the heart, obviously. You know, the, the heart. heart. The hearth. The house of the house of the rising race. I, of the heart. Lighted at the hearthstone of the race. He's what talking is about. Race? Is that like people or is it like the hustle? I think he's talking about lighting a candle, that you light a candle on the uh, hearth. That's what I took it to mean. Well, it shatters, wait, which shatters the temple of knowledge itself. We can <laughs> all relate to that. Yeah, and, it's very really interesting. Not, that he, and not a, temp, not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race. Oh, yeah, yeah, which pales before the light of common day. So he's making a, a reference to Plato, whom, you know, the allegory of the cave. Right. Yeah, which I think you referenced, Sarah, actually. I don't remember referencing. Yeah, I think he's saying... Oh, does. You, yeah. You, write, you light a candle at your in your fireplace, and it's bright inside your house, but compared to the sun... It's nothing. So he's saying kind of like domestic life compared to wildness is the same as a little candle compared to the sun. Something like that. Something and really, in a sense, civilization compared to wildness is like a, a candle compared to the sun. Compared, yeah, that wildness is a thousand times greater than civilization. But then, you know, and then when you're just thinking, all right. You know, he's a Luddite. He's against all whatever, anything made by humans. No, he is including uh, Homer and Shakespeare as among the wild things. You know, they don't count as civilization. They count as sort of anti-civilization. So it's he's got a very kooky, uh, you know, by contemporary anarchist standards, you know, there's not you don't meet too many like street punks who are like, well, civilization sucks except for Homer, you know. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that at all. I mean, I think that he goes on to make a more emphatic anchor into the primordial um, if, in that he goes on to say, you know, I do not know of any poetry to quote 
which adequately, adequately expresses this yearning for the wild. Mm. Approached from this side, the best poetry is tame. I do not know where to find in any literature, ancient or, uh, or modern, any account that contents me, that nature with which even I am acquainted. Uh, um, then he goes on and doubt and and you know pours some gasoline on Augustine and Elizabethan age and Grecian. The only and then he comes down to mythology and he talks about mythology as being something worth uh, holding on to. Does anyone know what Thoreau's take on Walt Whitman was? Good question. No, Emerson. You know that that story is well told. Huh. Emerson was a, a big fan of um, Whitman's work but after Whitman sent it to him, right? Yeah, I mean, um, but Whitman, uh, it's 1855. 1855 is the first edition of yeah. Song of Myself, the 1855 edition. Yeah, so Thoreau so, uh, is almost dead. Uh, He's going to die in yeah, 1860, right? Yeah, he had another six yeah. years. There could have been, I bet he read it, though. I bet he got a hold of a copy. I bet it was uh, passed before him. I mean, That's I was going to question. Quote, That's actually good. That would be interesting. Emerson. I was going to quote uh, Thoreau's poetry because uh, you know Thoreau's poet Thoreau's poetry is weird and kind of interesting, but pretty square. You know, it doesn't sound Barbara. much like uh, Whitman. You know, like um, Emerson Road. What's I, I, that? I feel Road about. is the uh, a, the the poem that um, that Thoreau Did, embedded into this essay. Right. Oh, right. That he wrote. Yeah, he wrote. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that. And, uh, you know, it's like that's a whole, that's a whole line. You know, that's a whole line of uh, fire and smoke on the horizon. You know, that's a real interesting place to go, just to look at that poem and you know what he's hmm. trying try to puzzle it out. Yeah, maybe we should do that. Read yeah. the poem. I don't have it in front of me. I did just in this part also want to point out a, a reference um, that Olson picked up from this essay, if I may. It's it's just brief. And this is what Thoreau writes. Um, Who derived his words as often as he used them, transplanted them to his page with earth adhering to their roots? Huh. What's that, Olson you're quoting? No, no, that's Thoreau. And Olson, as I recall, you know, says, you know, leave the roots on. You know, when you write, leave the roots on uh-huh. so that you show where it came from. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a, a paraphrase. But uh-huh. uh, that's, that's about what Olson wrote. And he picked it up from Thoreau. There's all kinds of glimmerings like that you can see in this essay. Yeah. Hmm. I'm noticing here that there's some Chaucer in Walking as well. There's a, a couplet quoted from Canterbury Tales that I missed last time I read through it. Huh. Mm. But it's inserted into the text without any sort of setup. It's interesting. What oh, is it? Here it is. Um, so this is Thoreau's language. And then I'll let you know when I'm, when I'm moving into the Chaucer quotation. Not a flock of wild geese cackles over our town, but it, to some extent, unsettles the value of real estate here. And if I were a broker, I should probably take that disturbance into account. And then, without any sort of um, segue, 
There are the two lines from the Canterbury Tales. Then longin folk to goon on pilgrimages, and palmares for to seek in strands strones. I think Wonder I'm be that. with the Shorasota, the draught of March hath passed to the Rota, and bathed every vein in swish liqueur, of which vertu engendred is the fleur. Is the, you know, from the beginning of Canterbury Tales. The prologue, I think it's yeah, called. It's the pil- yeah, the prologue, yeah, the pilgrimage. Interesting. Yeah. I guess that's, that's a theme throughout walking, right, is the pilgrimage. He refers to the Holy Land in the yeah. final paragraph. Right, yeah. Which, again, is, I think, I just can't get over the parallels between walking and the final paragraph of um, The Great Gatsby. Oh. We've mentioned so many texts that walking seems to have influenced Adorno, Charles Olson, mm. S. Fitzgerald. Do you want to hear the two? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the, oh, I, let's hear the uh, definitely. The, um, the parallel. The parallel the, isn't necessarily yeah. a smoking gun, but tell me what you think. Which yeah. do you want to hear first? The Thoreau. Here it is. So we saunter toward the Holy Land, till one day the sun shall shine more brightly than ever he has done, shall perchance shine into our minds and hearts, and light up our whole lives with a great awakening light, as warm and serene and golden as on a bankside in autumn. <laughs> I don't remember now. That might not be the paragraph that I had in mind. Now, uh, that's the, those are the last words of the essay. Yes. Yeah. And then so the uh, fantastic on, on a on a bankside in autumn, warm and serene and golden. It's yeah. So, so then, let's hear. Okay. Um, one thing to point out is that the uh, some of these images are distributed across the final few paragraphs of the Great Gatsby, but I'll just read the um, the the final paragraph. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther. And one fine morning, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I'm a little less convinced at this moment. (laughs) The two together, but. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, I mean, uh, those words are, uh, uh, you know. Um, you know, big home runs ceaselessly into the past. Well, there's something about the tone that does, maybe the exact phrasing is different. It reminds me, I had this, I was going to say this last time, I had this professor, I got a master's in creative writing from City College in 1985, and there was a professor named Mark Mursky. I just remembered his name just now. And he used to say, if you want muscular prose, Read Thoreau. Thoreau. And I never forgot that. You know. huh. Muscular for prose. There's an outdated term, you know, patriarchal term. But it's true. <laughs> and I think that Fitzgerald maybe I don't know if Fitzgerald read that essay, but there is some affinity. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I was just thinking about, like, beating on in the past. And I just don't, I'm not, I don't really feel that way strongly. I'm not sure. And and when he means past, he means some kind of like personal psychological past, I suppose. He doesn't mean the past like going back to Plasticine Man, 
thing, sort of thing, right? Isn't it about disappearing into history? You're talking about Fitzgerald? Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean disappearing into history? Um, disappearing into the past. Like the idea of history, yeah. I guess. I'm mean, read it again. I've just lost it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's gone into the past. <laughs> yeah, it receded into the past. I mean, I thought it just meant something like poor Gatsby just spent his whole life trying to recover this love in his past that was unrecoverable. You can't go back to that moment you fell in love with your girlfriend right. 40 years ago. That's not attainable. It's a, a kind of gothic, uh, you can't go home again. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and there are people like Gatsby who spend their whole lives tragically trying to recapture some moment, you know, or maybe there aren't people like that, but Gatsby is that way. I think a lot of people are that way. Sparrow, I do. I, I think a lot of people are actually that way. Yeah, maybe. It's pretty common. Are you that way? Why? Are you that way? I, I'm not. As I said, I, I don't. As I said, I find the statement a little baffling in terms of my attitude, for sure. I'm falling forward. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's I... what walking is, right? <laughs> it's a state of uh, like a rhythm of standing and falling um, that we've regularized physio physiognomically, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. It's funny because I and personally... And it's something that ties us to our beginning, you know, let's face it, yeah. I mean, I personally believe very strongly in walking backwards. Like, I think it's really good for people to walk backwards, and I try to spend a little bit of time every day walking backwards, but I always forget. But once in a while, maybe once a week, I remember it. I just take like a few steps backwards, wow. three or four steps backwards, but I feel like it does something hard to describe, something... Thing, it like reprograms your mind. First of all, you're you're backing up into uh, an unknown. You don't know whether someone's behind you with a knife, whether you're going to hit the wall. You know, so you it it's there's a level of uncertainty to it, and it's and, you're and, breaking your pattern. You know. Yeah, sure. I would also posit there's an element of surrender. Yes, good way to put it. Yeah. And then there's something you can kind of play with, like in your living room. You know, I would tell our readers, our listeners at home, you know, just try it. Like stand a few feet from your wall and just walk backwards and then try to do it quickly. And and just, of course, you're not looking backwards. You're just looking forwards and just experience that the motion backwards. I think it's very un-American to walk backwards. Well, I think it's a little bit of a crack uh, into the nature of the wild is, is, is instability. <laughs> you know, nature is not an algorithm. You know, it evolves through breaking patterns. Yes, you know, one of the things I was thinking about this week when I was thinking about walking, I had like a period of about an hour. I was going to the Woodstock Film Festival. A friend of mine gave me a ride. I got there an hour early, so I had kind of an hour to do nothing. So I started walking down this little road, and next to the road was a forest. And I thought, I'm going to be like uh, Thoreau and walk through the forest. And then I had two problems. One, I'm worried I'm going to break my ankle, you know, just walking straight through the woods. And okay. second of all, uh, Lyme disease. Mm. You know, 
So it was like I didn't. I ended up walking, you know, whatever, three feet into the wild, but then I didn't. But that instability. I was started thinking about Thoreau's ankles. He must have had incredible ankles. You know, like, we we've all been ruined right. by these uh, streets and roads and floors that we walk on. We, yeah. We need like, no mobility like, in our ankles. But like his, his for a moment, like Thoreau's thighs. <laughs> massive. I mean, you know, when you walk a lot, your thighs particularly just get like, mon- you know, get strong. And your calves, I think, yeah. too. I was thinking calves. these rich ragamuffin 19th century aristocrats always had great calves. Ah, really? Yeah. Well, based, based upon paintings of the body huh because now one thing i one thing i wanted to bring up also relative to walking you know rather than the marbling of uh aristocratic flesh is that is the origin of the word walking which is actually interesting it's a fusion between the old english wilken which means to toss roll move over huh. and an old Norse word mm. weekend Va- Valka Valka which yeah. means drag about huh. which is walking you know we're dragging about and we don't think about this but we're dragging about these torsos you know like mm-hmm. the process of walking is dragging about these torsos through this process of um tossing Mm -hmm. rolling over moving over like it's kind of mysterious but you know this falling thing of the two legs Mm -hmm. there is a kind of dance like quality to walking and a walk like quality to dancing that in a way that's something that i try to work on actually in my life when i as i walk through my house every day i try to remember besides walking backwards i try to turn it into a little dance my my daily walk i've written about this you know as sometimes i write these essays here's how to age gracefully here's how to avoid aging now that i'm old i occasionally write these essays and one of my theories is to turn your life into a dance <laughs> I like that idea. definitely it's not something that thoreau exactly discusses No, and it's an interesting question, I would think, along with um, whether Thoreau read Leaves of Grass. Mm. Is um, did Thoreau do much dancing? Was he much of a dancer? Was he was he considered to be a good dancer? I was going to talk about his, uh, you know, just based on reading Wikipedia. His they have a little section on his sexuality which is highly mysterious. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That is either asexual, heterosexual, or homosexual. And there's like sort of three schools of thought on it. And no one, there's no, he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have children. He has no apparent partners, uh, romantic partners. I think he's just kind of asexual. Yeah. I mean. But the one thing, getting back to the essay, and in relation to dancing, there's also this quote, and I wanted to ask you, uh, Andrew, Relative to, to Bob Dylan, actually. Oh, great. Um, yeah. In short, all good things are wild in, and free. There is something in a strain of music, whether produced by an instrument or by the
the human voice. Take the sound of a bugle on a summer night, for instance, which by its wildness to speak without satire reminds me of the cries emitted by wild beasts in their native forests. It is huh. so much of their wildness as I can understand. But this idea of um, the strain of music, I was just wondering if, you know, Bob Dylan had a certain degree of sort of participation and I would go back to this idea of the fourth estate, hmm. to the wild people, to this fourth estate within the U.S., within a s structure of society. Hmm. What's your question exactly? Well, I mean, whether Bob Dylan has a, has a connection to such a um, thing in music. To this kind of wildness. Free, to be a certain strain of music. Hmm. Um, to be like an instrument or by singing, by the voice, take the sound of a bugle in a, in a summer night, for instance. And then this idea of like a, a music, a form of music that is synonymous with the cries emitted by the wild beasts in their native forests in relation to the human psychosm, well, an I American do, human psychosm. I do, I do remember from... Bob Dylan's memoir, Chronicles, published in 2004, that he describes his initial attraction to the voice of Johnny Cash um, in terms reminiscent of what, what you just, um, just read, because he says that the appeal for him was the fact that um, if Johnny Cash were singing in the 1960s or 50s, or if he were an Iron Age caveman, the <laughs> the sound would have been the same. <laughs> Something along those lines. I wish I had Chronicles with me. I don't. But it's a beautiful <laughs> quotation that speaks very much to um, the, the language that you just read from Thoreau. And also Dylan... Super uh, high praise. That's super high praise. That's super high praise. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well deserved. I, love, I think Johnny Cash has that sort of voice. It resonates with people. And I was thinking... Uh, because of my encyclopedic knowledge of Dylan lyrics, uh, and also because it's about me, and I try to harmonize with songs the Lonesome Sparrow sings. Is that right? That's from Gates of Eden. Oh, Gates where, of Eden, okay. Yeah, where Dylan is, you know, sort of explicitly saying that he's singing like a wild bird. Hmm. Oh, nice, Sparrow, yeah. Memory. And also I think, like for me, I don't know, a lot of my feelings about Dylan come from his harmonica playing, particularly during his, you know, high period, which for me was somewhere around just before he went electric, actually, you know, maybe 65, 66. And if that, uh, what is it called? The uh, Albert Hall concert, which is mistitled, you know, where he's playing these incredibly wild and kind of eccentric brilliant uh, harmonica lines that are a little bit like wild beasts singing to me. Continuing <laughs> on with that thread, you know, passing further into, um, into the essay, I would bring up this, this other thing that I thought was very interesting in terms of that bardic yap, you know, <laughs> Whitman. He writes, um, there are other letters for the child to learn than those which Cadmus invented. 
<laughs> Spaniards have a good term to express this wild and dusty knowledge. <laughs> Grammatica parda, tawny grammar, tawny a kind of mother wit derived from that same leopard to which I have referred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting just in terms of the relationship of the Spaniard to a term to express this wild and dusky knowledge, which is commonly associated now with duende. Uh huh. Lorca's duende is actually of a Spanish origin and is this wild and dusky knowledge, which is, I believe, what Thoreau, you know, from the perspective of the 1850s, you know, whatever, you know, was was referring to. Huh. It'd be interesting to see if that's valid. But duende, isn't that this sort of, what, tragic awareness of death or something? Duende would be a good podcast. <laughs> What is Duende the would be a great podcast. The translation is a tragic awareness of death. I mean, that's what Duende. I thought it had something to do with. Well, Duende is a, a, a mountain spirit that inhabits huh. trees oh. and is embodied in putting on the mask of death and then speaking through it. Huh. Yeah, you're right. But Duende would be a great podcast. We should be back with that. <laughs> but you don't really get that sense of uh, the imminence of death in uh, in Thoreau. At least in this essay, I don't see it. It's, yeah, it seems very, like, green and alive. Very, I, like, ever well, I would I would glowing. posit that you can hear it a little bit in Johnny Cash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. But Sparrow, that's an interesting observation. There's an absence of um, pathos or a heavy, lugubrious awareness of, of death in walking. It's pretty sunny, even though he writes about um, rainy, um, rainy weather. And um, swamps. And swamps. He really celebrates swamps. But it's forward thinking and splashed with light and green. Right? Didn't you say? The, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that's what transcendentalism is. I mean, I personally find uh, Emerson too sunny, you know, maybe because of my own whatever tortured relationship with the New Age. But it's just that's also in Emerson, a kind of optimism, universal optimism about everything. It's less apparent in Thoreau, but then... You know, where do exactly do you see pessimism? Well, a little bit in well, his relationship to civilization. The, the one thing I would say, and is a and is a marked distinction between Emerson and Thoreau, is even though they took a lot of walks together, and they did take a lot of walks together. Emerson was crazy about walking. Mm. Uh, for Emerson, his principal thesis is, and I quote, the infinitude of the thinking man. And he huh. uses the word man, you know, broadly speaking. But the mm. infinitude of, of, a, of a person in thought, in mm. the infinitude of thought, preferably mm. seated in a chair, you know, <laughs> and, you know, some sort of like, you know, trigger. I don't know. You know, Emerson would sit in chairs in his black suit, smoking and thinking and writing and reading books. God, infinite library, an enormous library. 
I wonder how much, um, and this is a question that someone who knew about this topic, no doubt, could, could answer, maybe one of you. But to what degree <laughs> was um, Thoreau reading the British Romantic poets who were quite invested in uh. walking? I know um, Angus Fletcher, the literary scholar, has this whole thesis that Wordsworth poems are paced to walking. <laughs> and then there's John Clare, the great walking, mm. high romantic British poet. But um, mm. those folks don't appear, I don't think, in, in walking the essay. Just, uh, just an observation. The basic premise of poetic form is based on walking. Huh. The idea of of lines, of verse. The word verse means to turn. And it's mm. based on plowing mm. fields, walking behind a um, an animal with mm. a plow and turning the plow. It's it's part of the end of our great migrations, the great period of human walking. Mm. Um, of mm ways of life that were based on migratory patterns right and the beginning and also, of yeah the beginning of farming man you know going back and forth the stanza comes from the word stand um you know which is also as we've discussed intimately related to walking but civilization and poetry on paper is is a form of standing versus walking hmm. the whole basis of staying in one place well, that seems really interesting. Did you make that up? or I'm kind of making it up on the fly, but yeah. <laughs> but those things are true, stanza and verse and yeah. yeah no. And also the way the way a line of poetry goes back and forth, you read from the left to right, then you go to the next line, is a little bit the way you plow a field. Not that I really know about how to plow a field, but it looks to me the same way you would plow a field. Yeah. Yeah versus uh, plowing the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> who, who are the lake poets? Because I, in this quote I have from Thoreau, he does mention the lake poets. He says, English literature from the days of the minstrels to the lake poets, Chaucer and Spencer and Milton, and even Shakespeare included, breathes no quite fresh and in this sense wild strain. So the the lake poets are the romantics, aren't they? I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. But the, he's saying that they don't breathe this romantic strain. The wild strain, yeah. They do not. Yeah. He finds not them quite. Boxing. What? Yeah. He says, it yeah. is an essentially tame and civilized literature reflecting Greece and Rome. Her wilderness is a green wood her wild man, a Robin Hood, thus violating the rule against rhyming in prose that they teach you in uh, whatever that is, strunk and white. Uh -huh. There is plenty of genial love of nature, but not so much of nature herself. I, those are damning words. Yeah. yeah. These are radical. I mean, what's interesting is, uh, to me, as someone that like writes thousands of poems, is it, it the whole essay does seem to be on some level a sort of call for a new literature, a kind of a demand to to reinvent um, 
world literature, especially American literature. Which is what Emerson calls for in his essay, The Poet. Hmm. And, what, and, and what Walt Whitman sought to answer. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. But I, I, I totally find this essay to be a profound instigation toward a new literature, to, toward new literature, toward an infinitude of literatures, an infinitude of experiential, experimental works. I mean, that's what's kind Within of interesting. Within the 10-mile radius. But we're yeah, like, that's an Olsen trope also. But Thoreau, you know, you read him and you kind of feel like he's saying like some modern New Age, you know, Ram Dass or whatever, who the latest New Age craze is, uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle or something. Like, don't... Uh, don't don't write don't think just exist just experience just be in the moment but no he's calling for a literature i think he does believe in writing he's kind of a writer who's against writing but is also sort of demanding some kind of revolution in writing it's not enough to just sit and stare at a chipmunk you know he seems to be saying that we should make some kind of works of art should keep some sort of record. Yeah. Which but also to, to be politically active, Sparrow. Yeah, good point. You know, I, you know, that's also a strong current of his, of his practice, of his, po of his poetics. I mean, he was, according to Wikipedia, he, he was basically the person that defended John Brown when nobody else would defend him. I, I heard, I read somewhere he was the first person to defend uh, John Brown. So John Brown is like essentially like a violent revolutionary. He's kind of like the Black Panthers of his time, who's like, I'm just going to start an insurrection, kill a bunch of slave owners, and free all the slaves. That's my plan. And Thoreau is like, this guy is a hero. And, you know, the rest of the abolitionists were distancing themselves from him, from John Brown, saying, well, you know, that's not exactly what we intended. Thoreau well, he, was like, he was, no. uh, he was also in the newspapers of the time depicted as a wild man. John mm. Yeah, and the... And yeah, the he knew and John Brown was. Monotype, you know, bleh, illustrations of him, you know, with the big beard and the wild hair. He yeah. Was, and wild eyes. Yeah, those crazed eyes. Yeah. Yeah. In and I think maybe Thoreau In met Kedu. him. Is that the name of Gilgamesh's friend? Enkidu. Enkidu is his uh, friend, his wild man friend. Right, right. Yeah, but it's interesting that Thoreau, and also the Mexican War, that he wouldn't pay taxes for the Mexican War. So Thoreau is like, you know, his politics... People are always saying, and I'm always saying, well, you have to understand the politics of the time. Like Lincoln was a racist. Everyone was a racist. But Thoreau was about 150 years ahead of his time. Well, that's how my Americanist friend described walking as a response to the tortured 1850s, that it can't be understood without a consciousness of the Civil War, that he was mm. advocating for this contemplative way of being that would somehow uh, assuage 
or improve the intractable political problems if people mm. were realized and more engaged with the uh, the ecosystem that that would help matters politically. Seems a little idealistic. Marion Williamson, is that her name, believes similar. What do you mean? No, um, who's the president New Age? Yeah, president? that's her name, Marianne Williamson. I don't really know anything about her. I'm just I'm just playing around. <laughs> Marianne Williamson is Sparrow's nemesis, Andrew. <laughs> I have a question, um, maybe to wrap things up, and perhaps you two will resist this insertion. But I was um, curious about the status of walking now. Huh. I mean, of course, we bad to essentialize or paint with broad brushstrokes, but why the heck not? Where, where do you see walking now? What, what sort of what huh. does it have culturally um, beyond your own personal experience of it? Huh. How does it come up? How is it represented? Any, any thoughts on that? That rather huh. um, open-ended huh. prompt? Yeah, hmm. I, I have kind of a strong um, resonance for me in it. It's, um, it's in the Museum of Natural History, and it's, and it's a um, diorama that doesn't exist anymore. And it's, it's from Tanzania, hmm. and huh. it was Mary Leakey discovered these footprints in Tanzania in 1977, and the diorama, which you may have seen, is of these two human, two anthropicitous um, human forms, a man and a woman, or a male and a female, walking together um, in the sand of this Tanzanian landscape with a volcano in the, in the way distance. Hmm. And uh, for me, walking goes back to our beginning, you know, hmm. 2.5 million years ago, this idea of, of coming erect. Sam, hmm. I'm pretty sure that that diorama is still at the Museum of Natural History. It's not, it's not, dude, it's gone. I'm pretty sure. I think it got moved. It got like, I think it had some juice, and they took the two figures and did something with them. And oh, that's it. But it's a very poignant, uh, primordial experience of human beings walking. Mm. Uh, and particularly poignant, this kind of, uh, I think they were echoing sort of an Adam and Eve thing. And it, and it underscores my contention that every footprint, like every handprint, is a poem. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I I love that. It makes me think of the, the Paleolithic cave art that hmm. we went to see in the south of France with those handprints, hmm. fifteen thousand year old handprints from children. Hmm. Oh yeah. At the cave wall. Hmm. Hmm. And I, I the first thing I thought was that th this was indeed a poem. Oh, uh -huh. a poem. Okay. It's funny because I I use a voice activated computer and um and i'm always saying the word poems you know uh or poem and my computer is always writing palm p-a-l-m really instead of palm. Oh, yeah curious. it maybe is, has that same way of thinking as you guys are having but hmm. in terms of the status of walking i just wanted to point out that um even though it's 
near and dear to my own spirituality. In this convenience culture that we live in, it's often seen as um, either a poor man's endeavor, hmm. out of necessity, something senior citizens do um, for leisure. Hmm. Um, in or, shopping centers. Yes, in shopping centers, exactly, early morning shopping centers, or a consequence of geopolitical upheaval in the movements and migrations of the refugee. Huh. I don't really um, encounter many, um, I guess, um, positive representations of it. Or you know what I, happened? Yeah. You know what happened to me today is I was I was talking about how I was walking from the bus to my home and from my home to the bus, and I yeah. forgot till this moment that the last time I was walking in my life, you know, which was at around 6:30 tonight. I was walking home, you know, about a quarter mile, maybe less, and this guy stopped his car. He was going the opposite way as me, and he said, are you okay? It was like, (laughs) I said, yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? And he said, thank you. Yeah, I'm okay. But it was like, he just thought I was crazy, homeless, in trouble, (laughs) my car had stalled, you know. (laughs) Praise the Lord. He was recognizing you as a member of the fourth estate. Yeah. Sparrow, Sparrow. In one of my long New York City walks recently, a relative called me and asked, what are you doing? And I told him and he had the exact same response. Are you okay?" Oh, right. Like, are you divorcing your wife? Yeah. (laughs) Is everything. Why else would a guy take a walk? I said, everything is fine. He said, what, are you just walking aimlessly, was his follow-up question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I was struck by that. I find it emblematic. <laughs> Henry David Thoreau would be morose to know. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny. I was going to say, you know, the state of walking is in very good shape because of podcasts. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, we are now making a podcast. But I think, like, my theory is a lot of people do a lot of stuff right now, particularly jogging, exercising, because they have a podcast to listen to. They're addicted to some podcast. So they they do things like go for a walk so they can have a chance to listen to their podcast. No, we can inhabit some, uh, some cerebellums. The one thing I would say, just to to you, Andrew, to come back to um, what Thoreau is, is a bewilderer, and he would be into that. He wants to be, wants us to be aimless and to be led astray <laughs> in the wild. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Hmm. Well, That's the poem, man. That's the new literature. Hmm. This has been a delightful conversation. And yes. I'm wondering. We're going to ring off. Yeah. And uh, not ring off, I'm going to stop recording. Right. Okay? So, catch you then. Surf's up. Do <laughs> Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.